Welcome to Education Currents, a show designed to provide current educational news and commentary from a Christian worldview. The greatest resource any community has is its children, and by providing for them the best possible education, we are providing for ourselves and future generations. Join us as we explore the latest social and political issues surrounding education. Here are your hosts, Dr. Rose Gamlin. Welcome, welcome. I'm here with Lemuel Vega. Thank you so much. You know, I was attracted to your ministry because it says Christmas behind bars, and I can't think of anything lonelier than being behind bars during Christmas time. And so I thought this would be a great interview to share with my listeners about someone who has had a journey that has brought them to this point in their life. So I'm going to ask you if you'll just share with us where you started. Tell us a little bit about your childhood and what led you up to this wonderful ministry called Christmas Behind Bars. I do want to confirm that Christmas is the loneliest time of one's incarceration separated from their families. And and Christmas Behind Bars wants to take the gospel message to these men and women who want change in their life. The birth of Christ, surely we think of that and recognize that, the crucifixion of Christ, but it's, it's that God will be a personal Savior to each and every one of them. I was raised in a Christian home. I had Christian parents who prayed and believed in God. Before I was in first grade, I had been robbed on Central Park in Chicago as a young child. By the time I was in second grade, I, I was tied in my seat with a jump rope in a Christian school. I was kicked out of school in third grade in a Christian school and public school in the same year. And by that time in my life, I had basically given up on education. I've been to psychiatrists. I've been told I'd have to be on medications the rest of my life. And by the time I was 13 years old, I, I told my mother, I said, I don't want no more hugs. I don't want no more kisses. I'm a teenager. I'm on my way. I began selling drugs, using drugs, drinking as a young young child, and I found out that I could make money, and I thought that money could fix my family's problems, because my mother was working two full-time jobs to keep the house going, and one day, I remember my mother, she had to always put back a portion of her groceries because she didn't have enough money, and I said, here, Mom, buy it all. And I gave my mom some money. And so I thought money, as a young child, I thought money could fix life's problems for my family. When really it was a lack of love. It was a lack of uh, dad being there. And the home was empty at some, some point. So by the time I was 18, 17 years old, I had made literally thousands of dollars. And I thought that I was on my way. I started uh, meeting people who who was robbing drugstores, and so that that introduced me to people with morphine and injectable drugs. And some people come to my home, and they rob me, put a gun in my face, they beat me. And I knew who these people were, and so I went to buy where their house was, and I thought, well, I'm going to kill them. I had a gun, and then I thought, well, I don't want to go to prison for murder. I don't want to kill someone, and I don't want to be killed. And so I moved to the state of Indiana. Big town attitude. I come to a little town in Indiana, and soon I was facing 10 to 20 years in prison, and by that time I was 18 years old. So I'm sitting in the county jail. I had a bond of $110,000. 
$110,000 is, is not possible for an 18-year-old to bond out. And you know, at that point in my life, I prayed. I prayed and I said, Lord, please get me out of this one and I won't do it again. I had the sincere desire that I wanted change in my life. Through a chain of events, uh, I was a trustee in the jail and we found the keys to the evidence room. And so I would take all the drugs out of the evidence room, we'd take them back into the jail, and we would get literally just blown out of the water, take alcohol back in there and get drunk in the county jail. And through that, I was doing so much narcotics in jail that I had bruises all over me, I'd fall out of bed, my brother would put me back in my bed, and they took me to a psychiatric hospital in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And during the next three days of my life, I began to come to, and the doctors told the, the county where I was at that they no longer could keep me in the county jail because that was messing with my mind, but literally it was the drugs. So they released me on a $110,000 bond. They released me until I went to court because they didn't want to pay the hospital bill where I was mandated to be. And so at that point, my desire days or weeks before that is, Lord, get me out of this one and I won't do it again. Well, what I found is I was powerless because now I was free by society standards, but I went back to Chicago to get more drugs to sell, to make more money to pay my attorney, which cost me literally thousands of dollars. So now I got busted again, and when you get busted when you're out on bond, there is literally no bond, and there I was on my way to prison for good. I got all the narcotics I could find before I went to prison, before they shipped me off to prison, and I OD'd in the back of the cop car before I got to my destination. God saved me during that time. I went to prison. I was shackled and handcuffed to some dude I didn't even know doing life in prison. And I went in a maximum security prison, even though my lawyer promised me a, a, a minimum security place because it's my first time. And the first words I heard in the back of that prison um, is, I'll give you a shank for your watch. So there I am, 18 years old, mm -hmm. going into a maximum security prison. It was a few months later. A few months later, and I was involved in a riot. I come back from Chow early in the morning, breakfast, and I heard a lot of people in the cell house saying that we ain't locking up. And I jumped up on the picnic table. I said, yeah, ain't no one locking up here. And we began to take some, some officers hostage. Uh, they were fixing to leave the cell house. The inmates had taken over the cell house. And I asked these officers, I said, where do you think you're going? And through that, 2 o'clock in the morning, they took about 20 of us on a bus, and they took us off to another prison because we were associated with that takeover of that cell house. And my friend... Uh, I asked the officers there, you know, I said, what about my medication? This is 2 o'clock in the morning. We were greeted by many, many high-ranking officials. And they got on the bus, and they said they didn't want to hear a word out of nobody. And so I got real arrogant. I was still belligerent, I guess, whatever the word be. And I said, what about my medication? And the officer said, I told you to shut up. And I did. But my friend, a great big guy, much bigger than I was, he said, what about my medication? And the guy told him to shut up. He said, yes, a boss. I was a good Mm -hmm. such and such and they pulled him off the bus and they whooped him and they beat him and he died three days later mm. it came out as an asthma attack that he died of an asthma attack long story short is I tried to get my GED in prison I tried to do what was right I knew they were fixing to release me from prison 
in a year. And so I knew that. And so I began preparing my mind, my life, and I wanted change because after all, I had messed up when they let me out of the county jail. I messed up. I went back to the old way, even though I desired the right way. So now I'm in prison, getting ready to go home in about a year from now. And so I decided that I needed to quit getting high in prison. And so I practiced for one year before they allowed me to go home from prison, not to get high anymore because I desperately wanted change this time. I didn't want to go back to prison, didn't want to be involved in that way of life, but I never asked God to be my strength or my hope. So I kept selling drugs in prison, but I wasn't getting high anymore. And I remember one time going to a church service in the prison, and I wasn't going to church to listen to the message of the pastor that would come in from the outside world, but you would go there to congregate to sell drugs to other people who met at the chapel. And at that point, I remember one day bowing my head in that chapel, and I said, Dear Jesus, if ever you can use me, I want to be used by you. Now I'm probably 20-some years old. And I remember that church group, they brought in a box of peanuts, a 25-pound box of peanuts, And I filled my state coat with peanuts. You can't buy peanuts in prison. You don't get peanuts in prison. And I love peanuts. I ate them all the way back to my cell house. And when I got to my cell, I took out the remainder of the peanuts that I had, and I put them in my locker, and I would eat them one a day until they were gone. I was released from prison. That meant a lot to me to get something like that when you're in prison that you don't get normally. And when I got out of prison, I I joined a church, And I tried to do what was right. I wanted to do what was right, but I never had the power to overcome the sin, the inclinations of the flesh. For the next 12 years of my life, I struggled with addiction. Never went back to prison, but I struggled with addiction, and I so desperately wanted change in my life. And that change began to take place in my life when I found that there was no hope in the world outside of Christ. Yes, uh, sick and ready to die. I found myself, uh, when I got out of prison, I felt like I had to catch up. I had to make money. So I began taking drugs to the prison, meeting the officers outside the prison, giving them the drugs, paying them. They would take them into my friends, and my friend would send me the money in my post office box. So in that 12 years, there were cars, there were convertibles, there was gold watches. There was all kinds of secular, materialistic stuff. But I found myself stuffless, empty, sick, and ready to die about 16 years ago. I went to the medical doctors, and I told them I needed help, I needed healing, I needed mending, and they began to tell me about methadone and abuse and about programs, and I knew that these people couldn't help me because all my life I'd heard of programs and so desperately tried to change my life. 35 years of failure, I humbled myself, and I got down on my knees, and I said, Dear Jesus, please help me. I want to quit, but I can't. And so it wasn't about, Lord, get me out of this one. It was about, Lord, I need your help, for I want to change in my life. And I'll tell you that I began to seek God's will daily for my life. I needed a job. I resigned from a good factory job. And God blessed me uh, with a grocery business. And the church where we were attending had the idea of making some gift packages and taking them down to the local county jail. And I said, oh, what a great idea. I said, those people will appreciate that so very, very much. 
When I was in the county jail, facing 10 to 20 years in prison, there was a group of young people, six or seven, that came around the catwalk to come and sing a few songs to us. They didn't bring no cookies or granola bars or Bibles. They didn't tell us about Jesus, but they came. And I had tears in my eyes at that point in my life because all my friends were gone. The dope man didn't come to see me. Uh, girlfriends leave, whatever it is. And I was in despair, and these people came at a time in my life when I wanted change. And so the importance of going back down to the county jail to sponsor the church's idea was a tremendous blessing to my life. And I'll tell you that the first time we took these packages to these men and women, it was just such a blessing. We couldn't see them personally. We had to get down on our knees through a little food slot and pass these packages mm. into them. The church, the church was there to tell them Merry Christmas and wish mm -hmm. them God's blessings. But I had five minutes to tell them that there was hope for their life, that Jesus had helped me in this first year, second year, third year, that he would help them no matter what they were facing. And on the way home that night, I took my wife's hand and I said, baby, you couldn't give me a brand new Corvette for the blessing that I received tonight. We made 350 packages. We had 50 left over that night. And on the way home, we dropped the extra 50 off at a county jail. And so the next year we did the one jail, then two, three, five, 10, 12. So over the years, Christmas Behind Bars, it, it spawned out of people's love and compassion that they shared with me when I was on my way to the penitentiary and the people when I was in prison of how God will transform your life if you'll just give him a chance. Now, you said you had to pass these gifts through a slot. What could be in the gift? Uh, we had cookies, granola bars, pretzels. Everything has to be jail friendly. Um, they'd have to go through a food slot. So the food slot is probably six inches tall and probably 18, 20 inches wide. And I was on my knees at that food slot. And the thought came to me that if I would make these packages a little bit bigger, I'll bet they would open the door. And that's exactly <laughs> what happened. The next year, I didn't tell anybody. We made the packages bigger. And sure enough, they opened that steel door. And then we were able to meet and greet personally those men and women behind those doors. Now, uh, our listeners could contribute to this ministry. Absolutely. They could go to christmasbehindbars.org. Or they can call 260-827-8835. And we'll repeat that again as we conclude the show. So you are, you're giving these gifts or these food, what, what do you call them? Food? Blessing bags, gift blessing packages, bag, gift whatever packages, it be. Gift. Yep. Tell us some of the experiences that you've had since now. This is how many years that you're, you've been? 16 years. 16 years. Tell us just some of the success stories from these packages? I had a Muslim uh, gentleman. It was really interesting. We'd done a service, a three-day service at a prison, and I believe it was the last day, and there was a man that come walking out of the congregation. He was one of the last men, and I, I thought by his beautiful smile, surely he was a Christian. And he said, you know, I'm a Muslim. He said, but what you're saying is starting to make sense. God had already orchestrated uh, this opportunity to share with him the gospel. Earlier that day, he received a visit from a Christian lady, and she had told him, why don't you try Christianity? He said, I can't. I'm a Muslim. But he came to the service, and he told me, he said, I come out just for the bag like everybody else. <laughs> he said, but what you're saying is starting to make sense. So that, that's powerful when God had already orchestrated something like that. I do want to say that a miracle from God is to be able to go into the same prison where I once used to take drugs back to that prison to be able to take 2,000 huge gift packages wow. filled with hope 
instead of degradation and drugs. And so to be able to go into that prison where I was once incarcerated, that is only by God's providence. Amen. We are now volunteer chaplains at that prison, so God is working in a great way. How the message you you mentioned that you now can be a chaplain or you are a chaplain you're allowed to speak so you your gifts preceded you and now you speak. Well, you know, as a young child, I thought that money could buy happiness, and so I thought if you had cars and boats and you had attained to success by society standards, but I, but I found out that that was all wrong because today, by God's standards. The less that I have, the happier I am when it's all focused in and around him. So we want to leave these men and women that are in our jails and prisons. They've been destined to X number of years for penalties uh, put upon them for things that they have done wrong. So certainly they're in a place to pay a debt to society. But by God's standards, we were all born on death row. We're all, all born with a case of unmanageability. So... Jesus, I have found personally to be the answer to that problem. And I can promise these men and women who are in our jails and prisons that Jesus will do for them what they've been seeking all their life. I noticed that, you know, as a young child and you suffered that failure in school, then when you started looking for solutions and you went from one, uh, explain a little bit when you were going from one facility trying to become drug free what you went through well the first rehab i went to um i didn't have enough money to have someone come and talk to me so so i just left i went out on the street i felt hopeless i felt like um i tried and i just went back to my drug use the first hospital that i actually made it to um i had to sign all this paperwork that they could tie me to the bed they could do this they could do that and i crossed all that stuff out and i said look you're not going to tie me to the bed you're not going to do this you're not going to do that and they said look if you don't sign the whole deal you can't come in here so my wife and i left we drove around town we went out to eat And then I went back and I said, okay, I want help. And so I went to this hospital, and I OD'd in that hospital because I was scared. No one come and told me what they were going to do to me tomorrow morning. They didn't tell me what they just. I had no idea what treatment involved, and I never met anybody before who had been in treatment for drug addiction or alcoholism. So I OD'd in that treatment facility because I was scared. I took gobs of sleeping pills that night, and I woke up at the hospital, and they thought I tried to commit suicide, and I didn't. They kicked me out of that hospital, just like they did in the school system when I was younger. If you don't do it right, they kick you out. I got kicked out of that hospital, and a couple months later, I made it to another treatment facility. Well, this time, I threw my drugs in the parking lot. I walked in. I told them I wanted help, and I surrendered my sleeping pills, even though I was still scared. I said, look, this time I want to do it right. I don't want these, and so they flushed them down the toilet. They told me to flush them down the toilet. So at next day, I met the doctor, and the doctor asked me what I'm doing here, and I said, look, I'm sick, and I need help. Well, it was the same doctor that had kicked me out a couple months earlier <laughs> across town at the other place. They begin to take you through these programs, and I remember distinctly sitting in this music class, and this lady told all these people that was sitting around this room, she said, whenever you feel like using drugs, you should put on some headphones and listen to some easy listen music, and that will calm you. 
that woman had not a clue what she's talking about. Because when temptation enters the person's mind, we already got our hand in the cookie jar. Unless we have a power to separate us from the problem called sin, it's not just drug addiction or alcoholism. So an abuse doesn't help the alcoholic. Um, you know, methadone doesn't help the drug addict. We need that personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and they're not allowed to talk about that in treatment facilities. College-educated doctors are not giving our people the answers that we need, but yet our society thinks that these people, there's no hope for Mm -hmm. them. And that brings up the question of your wife. She stuck with you through all of this? My wife did. I'm thankful that she did. I'm sorry that I can't go back and mend the brokenness that I caused in her life during those 12 years. Physical abuse, verbal abuse, not coming home for days and weeks at a time. But I remember finding notes in my lunch sack. And it would say, you know, Jesus loves you. And, and where are we going with this? And, and, and one night she asked me, she said, do you want the cocaine or do you want me? And I put my arm around her and I said, baby, I said, I love you. I want you, but... I've got to have this. And, and until Christ is the focal point of our life, we, we find that we're powerless over all these addictions. But my wife was able to hold on because she knew who Jesus was, and she had a relationship with Jesus. And so, therefore, she kept praying for me. She kept, my, my lunch was packed, my clothes were, were pressed, my shoes were polished, and I mean, just a godly woman, and she, she held on through that because her relationship was founded in Christ. Amen. Amen. So now we are to this point in your life where you have started this ministry called ChristmasBehindBars.org. In fact, you can go to the website www.ChristmasBehindBars.org, or you may call 260-827-8835. You started with, you said, 350 gift bags, and now today you've this year, how many gift bags did you get? Actually, it started with 350 in the first county jail. And now this year, by God's grace, the first week in January, we delivered 15,000 gift packages to the state of Virginia. Amen. So that's 15,000 to start off the and start off the new year. Here's the deal. is Every year, we thought that it could never grow more than what it's grown before. 350, 500, 1,500, 2,000, 3,000. And then when we had 3,000 packages to our local county jails. Then the prison where I was in prison, they approved the program, but it was only through prayer. Because we, we presented the idea to the, to the prison, and the prison, the superintendent said no. We asked the chaplain. The chaplain was supposed to ask the superintendent. he come back with no. Then we asked the program director. I said, look, I understand. You don't want the big gift package. I said, let's make a deal. How about a quart baggie filled with peanuts, roasted and salted in the shell, and a Bible study application? Would you ask the superintendent? And the word come back, and it was no, and don't ask no more. So we didn't ask them no more. But my wife and I worship every morning, we'd continue to kneel and pray and say, Dear Heavenly Father, we know that you can make a way if it would honor and glorify you, not our will, but thy will be done. And sister, let me tell you something. The superintendent got removed from that prison. The chaplain didn't come back no more one day. And the program director was no longer in charge of programs. And the next superintendent not only said that he thought that would be a great idea, but his wife was a superintendent at another prison. And so it, it just began to grow with leaps and bounds. I want to tell you the value that a prisoner puts on this program. We received a check last week for $1,242 from a prisoner, somebody who makes possibly 50 cents a day 
sent a check for $1,242. I was inspired for the first donation we ever received from an inmate. I believe it was for $5. And I cried and I cried Mm -hmm. that someone who makes 50 cents a day would be willing to sponsor this program to bring hope unto other prisoners. Amen. Amen. And I have one last thing to say, and that is God bless. You have been listening to Education Currents, a production of MRG Media Ministries. For more on this or to contact us, go to mrgmediaministries.com. That's all one word, mrgmediaministries.com.